All right, everybody, we're back. The second uh, podcast for our doubleheader day. That's right. This is episode number 25 of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. My name is Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. We're joined today by Brett Feinstein. Hi. Hey there. We hey, appreciate you taking the time to come do this. Absolutely. Thank you guys Thank for you. having me. Uh, I promise this is it's not as bad as you might think. <laughs> I always get nervous when I... No, you're going to do great. Gonna you do will. Great. Uh, so the intro is the same all the time. If you know something that could be of benefit to people in recovery, post it, comment it, share it. Everybody needs to know where to get Narcan. Uh, everybody needs to know where beds and treatment centers may be or how to get them. If you have any information, any at all, that could benefit the recovery community, please comment or post it. Share it. Let us know. You can text or email uh, Daniel or me. We can let people know. Absolutely. Uh, we still need your support, both prayer and economic. So we have these awesome Recovery Lab hoodies. We were just touting to Brett here. Uh, they're 35 bucks. We only have extra large and XX left. They're 35 and 40 respectively. Uh, please buy one. You can order them from our website, recoverylabllc.com. And I see, oh, I see this coming across right here. It says right here. On the internet, that if you purchase a hoodie, uh, your credit score jumps two hundred points. Can't believe it! <laughs> yeah. Instantly and better that's looking. Fox News, yeah, and you know CNN it's true. also is saying that. So that's something. Your wife will respect you more. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is one of the unsung promises of recovery. Two hundred points on the credit score, man. That's for thirty five dollars. Thirty five dollars. You can't afford not to buy one. You can't afford not to buy one. Absolutely. In all seriousness, though, please buy a hoodie. It's the way that we support our podcast here. We operate on a shoestring budget. It's not like we're out buying steak and fancy non-alcoholic wine or something. Right, yeah, actually. And you can actually um, you can check those out at on our website directly. Again, that is recoverylabllc.com. Uh, and just click on the merch tab, and that'll take you right there. And you can even go to the uh, mugshot page, which shows the the people, our friends, pe- people that have purchased them, buy them, and we will certainly advertise you in a recovery lab hoodie. Absolutely, you can join that by uh, purchasing your uh, hoodie, as well as going to recoverylabllc.com slash mugshots, and uh, you can see all the. Uh, amazing individuals that have purchased them up to this point, and you can add yourself to that list. Indeed, indeed. I can't think of anything else to say. Or if you just want to make a donation, or uh, Patreon. Uh, we have a Patreon page. You can join it. We have premiere content available only through Patreon. Right, right. I think I forgot to say anything about that earlier today. Yeah, yeah. So we'll say it twice. Patreon. Patreon, yeah. We have a Patreon account you can subscribe. It's only a few bucks a month or as much as you want to pay, I think. Yeah, it's five bucks a month. And um, also, I'm reading right here um, that uh, your credit score will go up 100 points. 100 points. If you have you, a 300 point. <laughs> if, if, you, if you subscribe to us on Patreon. So Again, go check can, us out. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm glad you're way over there. Yeah, me too, man. It's been a hell of a week. Well, look, without further ado, Brett Feinstein, thank you. Yes, Hi. thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Hey. Here I am. You're, you're, you're leaning away from the microphone. Oh, you you may end up with the, the sign, the remi- the sign the, of the shame. The sign of shame okay. here, ladies and gentlemen. All right. There we go. Uh, so we have, like I told you over there when we were just chatting, the general format is kind of like a speaker meeting with questions. Okay. Uh, so it's not really all that complicated. Although I guess there, if there's a ground rule of sorts, I have in the past or we have in the past let people bellyache on and on and on about their shenanigans for too long. So we don't want to belabor the what it was like. Uh, we generally like to focus on what happened and what it's like now to make recovery even more attractive because okay. if we just sat around telling more stories, I don't know how productive that would be. Not so much. So let's start with the easy question. How did your addiction begin? Well, um, I think it began, see, I, I began using when I was still a child. Um, um, I think the 
the long-term illness and subsequent death of a parental figure um, led me to start how a lot of people do with alcohol. Um, when I was pretty young, um, a parental figure um, was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer. Mm. And uh, we decided to care for her at home as opposed to, say, putting her in hospice or whatnot. And um, so I remember the doctor, I was 10 years old. The doctors gave her about six months. Uh, she lasted another about 18. So by the time she passed, I was 11. And I think maybe just being a child, I did what I saw the adults in my life doing. To cope with to, the... I, I, didn't, I didn't know any better. So... By the time she passed away, when I was 11, um, I was abusing alcohol on a daily basis already. So I think that's how it began. Um, and the drugs didn't enter until I was about 14, 15. And so then I decided to add drugs to the mix around that age. Sure. So that's how it began for me as a coping mechanism to deal with grief, I guess. You know. Yeah. Well, that's what you do if you don't have a healthy outlet to right. talk and it's, about this. Especially it's difficult if, you know, everyone that you're surrounded by is, you know, they don't know any better and they're just trying to get through a really, really difficult, likely situation. And, you know, you don't have anybody else but them to look up to. And, you know, it's it's only natural that you would begin to, to kind of what they are doing would rub off on you. And so there's not, not a whole lot of surprises there. I mean, that's unfortunate as it may be. It's, it was a difficult situation. It sounds like. Well, in the, in the bullet point list of interesting facts about you that you sent me, the, it says that you were born in new Orleans, but you grew up in Los Angeles Yes. So all of your shenanigans largely happened out in L.A.? Um, pretty much, except for the, la the last couple years we're here in Mississippi. Right. So, you know. All right, so you're, you're experimenting in high school. You're 14 or 15, dabbling in. So, yes, um, started dabbling in um, hard, hard, harder drugs, street narcotics and whatnot, hallucinogens and... Uh, um, and it graduated to meth eventually. And, um, I think I just went the way a lot of people do. If you look at my teenage years, there's a lot of blurry periods, a lot of wasted potential. Like I said, I grew up in a very loving household, a little unorthodox, but very loving and supportive, kind of well-to-do. Um, like I, w there wasn't an opportunity I wasn't afforded. But all I wanted to do is just get high, so I wasted every opportunity I got. Right. Um, you know, I was I was the kid that got kicked out of high school and then dropped out of high school because of drugs. Um, couldn't keep a job because of drugs. Never really learned how to be a productive member of society because all I wanted to do was party, you know. Um, and... That's that was kind of my existence through my teenage years and into my twenties, into my early twenties. So, well, when so in your early twenties would have been the, the times where most people were like going to college and stuff like that, and you're I'm running around the streets of Hollywood, just kind of just kind of lost, you know, like, I guess I need to backtrack. So like I say, I, I was born in New Orleans. Um, How long did you stay in New Orleans? Until I was six. So you're we six. Mo we moved to California when I was six years old. So um, my mother was originally born and raised in Jackson, you know, a, a, di a, a different Jackson, but born and raised in Jackson. And um, <clears throat> um, when, she, when she turned 18, she headed for New Orleans. And she was a bartender in the French Quarter um, for years and years until she um, had me and uh, she had kind of began to 
build, like I said, a very unorthodox family, but a very loving family. Um, there was this wonderful couple that kind of took my mama in, and they all decided they were going to raise me together. Um, so, like I said, it was very loving, kind of unusual. And so when I was about six, we all moved out to California and started our life out there. You know, and that's one of the parental figures that I lost when I was 11. And then I lost the other one when I was 19. Um, and uh, that's just oh, that's how I learned to deal with grief at a very early age, and that continued throughout my life. Um, I did, I, I went through a lot of death of people that I loved, and every time I just went, it just, I went further and further down that rabbit hole. You know, um, so um, when I was about 19 and I lost that other parental figure, I kind of just, I just wanted to get lost. I didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't know how to deal. Here I was, like you said, most people are going to college, starting their lives, figuring out what they want to do. And I was still mentally and emotionally like this scared child yeah, who just didn't know how to deal with life. Right. You know? Other than drugs. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's what I did. I spent a lot of years, you know, calling it, calling myself having fun. But really, I was just trying to escape. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. just trying to escape. And um, and also, it, it pops up later on in, in my life and my story it's kind of a vicious cycle when you're living that life. You know, the reasons why you use produce more misery. Right. Which you then have to use so more drugs in order continue to continue to use right? it. And it, it becomes such a vicious cycle. Right. You know, and, um, and it's seemingly no end in sight. Right. And you get to a point where you're just the, the thought of you're, you're so used to this cycle that the thought of breaking that cycle and, and on one one end of the spectrum, you know that this is not working anymore, that you've got to do something different. But the fear of doing something different and not having those those chemicals to numb the the, the horrible feelings you have inside, it, it is oftentimes too great to, to get someone to, you know, go try something different. That's why oftentimes it takes you have to hit that wall, the proverbial wall that you just you're at a point where you you don't have any options. You don't have any options to, you know, think about it. Oh, this is this is going to be difficult to quit these things. You're you hit that wall, and it's it's abundantly clear that your options have 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 run out. So I, I totally get what you're. I mean, it, it's it's difficult to make that decision to do something different. And a lot of people, you know, shame is a huge factor with 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 uh, drug addicts and alcoholics. It's, you know, the the shame of knowing that your life is not going anywhere but not having the the willpower as they say to stop just builds even more shame the shame response and then that just it compounds itself and it you you find yourself in this horrible horrible reality of you can't live with drugs and you can't live without drugs exactly and it's just a tough it's just hell it's absolute hell I have found myself in that dark place twice in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was usually on the cusp of finally being willing to do something different. Right. You know, it's being ba beat down. Yeah. Once in my, in my twenties and then once in my thirties. Tell um, us about those times. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, um, my, my, I grew up in, in a pretty well off family, kind of privileged, kind of spoiled, kind of entitled, mm -hmm. never really meant to, develop any sort of work ethic or sense of responsibility or personal accountability as, as a teenager if I got in trouble with say the police they would you know my family yeah, would out. buy myself out of, buy my way out of it sure you sure. know so um I, there's so many crucial principles I never learned to apply in my life like they didn't pertain to me you right. know um and uh so that's kind of and when I um so when I turned 19 and, and this other parental figure passed away, um, she was the, I guess you could say, the breadwinner of family. You know, it was, this, like I said, this wonderful couple, and then me and my mama. And um, 
And so at 19, when the person that was like the breadwinner of this little setup that we had um, passed away, um, I was I was left a very quite a large inheritance, you know. Um, so still, so now here I am, I'm grieving. I'm I'm in active addiction now. I'm grieving, and I was just basically like given this like li- seemingly limitless. Right you know, um, way to supply all these unhealthy choices I was making. Money and addiction just doesn't go well together. Oftentimes they do not. No. So like when I was 19, I was, uh, I came into enough where I should have been set for life, right? Like I should have, it should have, you know, it was all laid out. It was all, um, but I was really sick, you know, I was really, really sick. And, uh, um, by the time I was 24, I found myself, I, w- I was basically a homeless junkie on the streets of Hollywood. I didn't even. Skid Row? Um, Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Um, I remember I was living in an 86 Toyota Tercel. Wow. You know, um, just ha- wake, being woken up and moved around wherever I could, wherever, <coughs> you know, we could park at the time, you know. Um, and at this point, I had a. And it was okay though because I had found the love of my life. I was in love at this point, right? Of course, of course. So you know, the whole world has crashed around. I am now completely broke. Life humbled me in my twenties, completely broke, completely destitute. But I'm in love now, right? Sure. Like it's us against the world, you know. And um, that's when we got pregnant. So now here I am in this situation, and I'm, I'm going I'm to become a mother. You know, in an '86 Tercel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, in an '86 Tercel on all the streets of Hollywood Boulevard, um, and uh, that was my first. Uh, that was my first. Uh, like you said, that that wall that we reached, you know, and uh, so. So, what year would that would that have been? Two thousand and four. Okay. Yeah, two thousand and four. Because I remember it was about February, March. And I found out I was I was gonna have a baby. We were know? we were probably because I was in LA. I was in Ventura, two thousand three to two thousand four and a half. So we were probably down there yeah. around the same time. That's crazy. All right, sorry. Yeah. So I did. So uh, so we decided that we were gonna clean up our acts, you know, and we were gonna, you know, start this family, and we were gonna grow up, you know. Um, and so that's what we did. Um, and for all, in, you know, for all intents and purposes, I guess I, I got clean, you know, um, I stopped drinking, I stopped doing, um, all the street drugs, you know, now looking back, I, there were periods in here where I did, uh, play with that doctor approved stuff. Sure. And I, we don't know what we don't know. And I didn't know that that was my addiction in full swing even. Right, then, right, you right. Know? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so I went about whole business of you know building that life you know got married had kids we had we had another we had a a son a few years later and just went about doing that life you know and just figured okay that was a phase in my life and it's over and I'm good like right you know um I just thought everything was okay now I never bothered to look at why I was doing what I was doing or how it had gotten there or and I still yet to learn coping mechanisms, you know, uh, any principles of recovery or anything in my life, I just trekked forward and thought I was done. I just, you know, and, uh, you know, and so I, and we went on like that for about 10 years. I said, I didn't drink, I didn't do narcotics. There was, you know, the doctor approved stuff here and there, but all in all, like I didn't, I didn't use, I was still not I was still, I still battled depression. I still battled, um, I still battled a lot of things. Like I said, I never recovered from anything. And uh, on a long enough timeline, I think when the marriage soured, because we were still two very sick people, all we had done was take away our means of dealing with it. Right. You know, so eventually the marriage soured and it soured to the point to where it became very abusive. And um, I stayed in that for a while. We were both miserable. We were both unhappy. Um, we were both sick in our own right still. And now we had these two children, 
you know, um, and it did. The marriage turned very abusive, and by the time I got out of the marriage, about after about ten years, so that would make my daughter was eight, my son was two. Um, by the time I finally got out of that marriage with my life, I did the only thing I knew to deal with it. I went back out and I went back out hard. Right. You know, I remember the day I told my husband our marriage was over. I immediately went to the store and bought a bottle of booze. And before that bottle was gone, I was looking for a dope man. Right. Hadn't touched the stuff in like a decade. And when they, when they, you know, it's progressive it's and just it's like just that. like that. Yeah, right back. Right, like right literally back. the, that day, Yeah, yeah you really. know, um, and there I went, how they say off to the races again, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, within six months of, I say relapsing, you know, cause within six months of relapsing, all the walls were, were closing in around me. Right. Like it is so progressive and you do, like they say, you do not pick up where it started with the quote-unquote good times right you know yeah. you pick up where you left off and remember where i left off was i was a homeless junkie on the streets in so, the 86 or so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh so that's where you know very quickly within months i was back to being homeless and putting everything i had physically financially mentally everything i had was going into my addiction in full swing and now i'm dragging these two kids with me these two young children and we're all traumatized at this point you know and i i only like i I spoke with you earlier about it i only say this part of my story in the context of i think so often trauma and addiction and addiction go hand in hand Mm -hmm. you know so that is the only reason i include this in my story it's not to dwell on darkness or anything like that but that's that's my story i went through something really really traumatic and that's how I dealt with it because I didn't know any better. Right. You know? Well, I think it's important for the listener to be able to identify with certain aspects of everybody's story. Right. I mean, the general hope is that somebody says, I did that. Right. I had that happen to me. I can relate to that. I can understand, you know, because everybody's story will be just a little bit different. And they have some different backgrounds and different the you know, varying uh, degrees of trauma and varying degrees of addiction, varying ages. But I mean, I think it's important that we talk about those things yeah. and are honest about them. Yeah. Like I said, um, sometimes I've been told that I can say too much or, you know, I need to hold back certain parts, but this is, this is me. This is my story. No, we want your, we want so, your story. We want, you know, like that's, that's how I dealt with that. You know? Um, so what age are you? You've now, relapsed or resumed using you've got um, an eight-year-old so daughter so i got so the first time i say got clean but i i feel like i have to qualify that and i only learned that in recovery you know um I, I came to the realization that yes you know the disease of addiction was prevalent in my life even during that 10-year period where i didn't drink or or you know do meth or whatever else you know i didn't do all that you were the stuff. sober horse thief you know <laughs> yeah basically yeah you know so there are periods where it was very very you know very much there but so when I say like I got clean at at 24 and then I started using again at 35 that you know that's kind of where I'm you know where I'm coming with that so like I'm 35 at this point and so and so here I go like jumping right back into that world and now I'm a little older you know um and I got all these you know I got all these like real response. Now I have responsibilities, you know, that like I, I, I put on a good front for a lot of years. Like I was, I was, uh, I was a member of the PTA. I volunteered at my daughter's school. I was, uh, she didn't do soccer. She did basketball and track, but like I was the sports mom, like I, you know, all this stuff. And we had such this pretty picture built, but inside, you know, inside those, the walls of that home, it was, it was um it was it was kind of dark. There was love at one point, but uh you know addiction and and I think addict thinking can turn even the most loving situations sour. You know, like we have to, you know, we have to be vigilant about recovery. 
you know, there's there's a difference between recovery and abstinence. Right. And I think oh, that's absolutely. all I accomplished that first time around was just abstinence. Right. But nothing else. And like I said before, on a long enough timeline, it's not going to hold up. Right. You know? So here I'm 35. I've relapsed now. Within months, I'm back to being homeless. And... um and then I have some extended family out here in Jackson. Like I said, my mother was originally from here. So I decided to try that uh, geographical change. Sure. You know, everything's a mess here, um, but it's everybody else's fault. You know, you know, I like to, you know, I had a real hard victim mentality at that point, you know. So, Pretty if common. You, you know, you didn't know what I've been through. And right. to everybody else, if I, if I just can go somewhere else and just, so I basically decided to run from all. Right. Run from everything. Run from the divorce. Run from the the husband that I couldn't seem to make that break from. Um, run from the bill collectors. Run from the, just everything. I'm going to pick up and I'm going to go to Mississippi and everything's going to be fine. Right. It wasn't fine. Because, you know, I brought me with me, right? Right. <laughs> and so I remember, um, uh, so I can't remember, I came to Mississippi on Christmas 2013. That's when we left. Um, and I got here and, uh, being honest about my part of the story, I grabbed a backpack, my two children and made a stop with, with the dope man, hopped on a train and here I came. This is going to fix everything. Right? right. It took me. But like, we want to make sure we <laughs> stop by the dope man first. Right. <laughs> Had to do that. Right. <laughs> you got to make sure. got to have this priority. It's a long it. trip. <laughs> yeah. Right. <You> gotta. <laughs> so that was the important stuff. Gra- grab kids grab a backpack with, I don't even know what was in it at this point, you know, um, and like every good junkie, they have a backpack right, full a back- of random shit. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and, and a bunch of dope. Like, I don't even think, I bet there was a screwdriver in there. Who knows? Who knows at this point <laughs> that, and, uh, I don't even think I had shoes on my feet. At this some point. of those portable, uh, USB batteries. Yeah. 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 <laughs> some random, random stuff. Yeah. And I think for some, I think I had a, a bag that someone had given me some fried chicken. I don't know, like really, nice. really random stuff, right? Nice. So here we came, and uh, it was going to be all good. It was going to be all better. My mom, my mama was out here at this point. She had already come out here a couple years before I did. Um, she had moved back to Mississippi, so here she was, and I had an aunt out here, and it was all good. Everything was just going to be perfect. It took me three days to find a new dope man. Wow. Like when I tell you, literally, he lived next door. Wow. Like, so, and just right there, back off to the races. You know, so here, but here I am. I'm a fish out of water, still really traumatized, have not dealt with anything, right? And, uh, but all relocating did was give me new people to, to, to cry to, new people to tell my story to, new people, new ways and means right. to do what wasn't, to do what I needed to do to get what I wanted. Because exactly. it had stopped working in California. So now I had a whole new playing field. I could do it all over again. Right. You know? And uh, it got really bad from there. It got really, really bad. The next two years I ran around Mississippi really, really crazy. Really, really sick. Um, doing things I never saw myself doing. Going places I never saw myself going. Hitting new bottoms, new lows, New, new, uh, just you name it. In recovery, we talk about yets. Like when people like to say, well, I didn't do this. Well, I didn't do that. Well, I would never, not yet. Right. Stay out there and, and, and see what happens. It'll happen. Right? It'll, it'll come around for you. So it's like I furiously started checking off that those yets. Right. Like check off that back check. Like, you know, at this point, I don't think I have very many yets left. Except for I haven't, I've managed to not die, you know, but I was, uh, and then, um, the legal trouble started, right? So here I go, I start catching charges left and right, could not stop catching charges once I started. And after about the Isn't second, that the way it goes? <laughs> they just wouldn't leave me alone, man. Yeah. They just wouldn't stop messing with me. Right. Yeah. Like, I, you know, never mind that, like, I was... At this point, I was... Gleefully blatant breaking the law. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I was a hopeless junkie who... There wasn't a law I wouldn't break to, once again, 
be ways and means to keep doing what I was yeah, doing. Yeah, you got to take care of yourself when you you're know? in those modes, you know? Right. Hey, you got to break the law. You got to break the law. Like, they just wouldn't stop messing with right. me. Right. How dare them? <laughs> how dare them have a problem with me breaking the law? You know, and, and even very quickly, my sad story about everything I had been through started wearing thin on law enforcement, on, you know, the people that I had been using that to manipulate into giving me what I wanted, you know? Um, it got to the point where, like, even the dope man was like, man, you might want to stop doing this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, when the, when your dope man wants you to get clean, you know it's bad. Yeah. You know? That's a good indicator. <laughs> that it's pretty bad, right? So, uh, so yes, yeah, so the catching the charges, being in and out of jails, about my second or third charge. So the worst day of my life. My, probably my lowest points. February 3rd, 2016, that's when I lost my children. Because you know, keep in mind, I'm now dragging two young souls through this hell. Right. You know? And I just, I, I was, it wasn't that I didn't love them. I just, I, I didn't love myself. And one of the hardest admissions I ever had to make in recovery was that my children were not enough to get me clean or keep me clean. Well, your addiction was in full force. Yes. It was running the show. And as long as I as long as I still let pride take the lead, well like, well, at least I have my kids. At least I didn't leave my kids, you know. But look how we were living at that point. You know, I very quickly once once again became homeless out here, you know, running around. We were sleeping at dope houses and they just they weren't living any kind of quality of life, you know, at that point. So eventually, I did end up losing them. They went back to California to live with, which is now my ex husband at this well, still my ex husband at this point. So they went back to um, live with him when I was sitting in on that like second or third charge, and then I got out a couple months later, and I really didn't have like really what's the point now, you know. Um, so I did, I did what we do and use that as an excuse to go even further. Down the hole. Down the rabbit hole, yeah. And uh, I kind of thrashed about in that misery for most of 2016, you know, um, in and out of jails. Um, I was either sleeping in a zone in the county jail or in a park or at a, at a dope house. Or that was my existence. It was really, I mean, the epitome of hopelessness, right? And then um, I was uh, offered, finally I was offered something called drug court. What is drug court? Sure, sign me up. You know, right, something other than up. this, yeah. It's um, not prison, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, at this point, you know, I, I had charges and years hanging, you know, hanging over me. And so sign me up, right? So, um. I remember that October, I finally had resolved all my legal issues, got on drug court. First day of drug court. I go, and I go, and I meet the judge, and I get all the rules, and what do you mean? I can't drink either? Oh, Lord, what have I done? Anyway, so I leave drug court that morning and got high. Yeah. The next day, they called in for testing. I was like, well, this has been fun. Wow. So I went on the run from drug court. Um, I was on the run a couple weeks. Don't really remember a lot of that. Um. Ended up catching another charge while on drug court. So now I really am thinking it's over. I'm really thinking it's over. I'm told I'm being terminated. I'm going to do my time. And I can go and wait indictments on all these new charges. And it was just, I had, that was my second time coming to that, that while you spoke of, that, that point. So, you know, now I'm in my late 30s. And it was that point. I was like... What do I have to do for this to not be the end of my story? Where you, you know, it's where you literally cry out, like, what is it going to take? And I didn't realize the answer was me. It's going to take a, a fundamental change within me. Right. Um, for my story not to end up like that. And, uh, you know, um, I'm not, I, I did. I remember in my jail cell waiting my transfer to MDOC, sitting and praying and just talking to God and just, you know, outwardly accepting where I was in my life and whatever. How much time were you facing? Um, the first charge, because the, they had two charges rolled into one, and I was looking at eight years, I think. 
for those. But then I'd gone and caught this new charge, and so I had to wait out indictment on that charge because I caught that while on drug court. So I, there was going to be more time coming down the pike, so to speak, you know. And I was just kind of, you know, resigned to the fact that I was going to prison, you know. And I didn't know what was worse, that or when I wasn't sitting in a jail cell, I was resigned to the fact that I was probably going to die a junkie. Right. Like, those are my two existences that I, that I was having to reconcile, you know? And it did. It brought me to a place literally on my knees in the county jail, just crying out, like, I'm ready. I'm ready for something different. No matter where I go from here, I'm ready for something different. Like, I don't want... I don't want this to be the last the chapter, sum, the sum total of my life. Right. And to this day, it's inexplicable. I remember I was supposed to transfer on a Thursday. That Tuesday, I was called up to the guard's desk, and uh, the drug court was on the phone. And they're like, "We're going to give you one more chance. Mm. We're going to say we're going to give you a chance, a shot at treatment instead." And so that day I was transferred from the county jail to a treatment center in Meridian. And that's my clean date. Wow. December 6, 2016. Oh, that's awesome. So, and that's where my life really began. You know, I was in treatment for three months. I'm very fortunate that the treatment center I went to took us to an outside 12-step meeting every night, just about, except for Fridays, I think. And uh, so... I started seeing and hearing all these stories that were bits and pieces of my own. Right. And I started seeing people that had done the despicable things I had done that I thought there was no coming back from, and they had come back from it. I saw people that had lost their kids and been through trauma and done things that, I had done that made it really hard to look in the mirror or to even find myself worthy of a good life at this point, you know? Um, and I got to see that something different was possible. Um, and also I received, I think what was a really turning point for me is, you know, the, the fellow, the 12 step rooms, you know, they're real big on loving you while you learn to love yourself. Mm-hmm. And the people in these rooms did that for me, you know. Um, it didn't matter how, you know, with, with all my crazy and my darkness and my self-loathing and my regret and my lack of faith, especially in the beginning in myself, they loved me anyways. You know, they loved me through all of that. So when I finally got out of treatment... I didn't know what to do with myself. I had a good healthy amount of fear of what would happen if I did get high again, but like I didn't, still wasn't totally sure how do I not get high outside the confines of a treatment center, you know? Um, So immediately upon discharge, I went back to that room I had been going to every night for three months. And uh, I didn't get high that first day out of treatment. That was a big deal for me, you know? So I kept going back to to that 12-step meeting. And uh, slowly but surely, I started putting together some some days of sobriety, you know. Um, And it's it's been a journey. It's it's been, um, it's definitely been um, Gosh, it's hard to put into words. I have been in such a reflective and almost like pre-nostalgic state of mind lately because uh, I do feel like my story is about to come full circle in a way. How so? So having lost my kids, you know, um, I could not go running back to California when I got out of treatment because now I I owe a debt to the state of Mississippi. I'm on drug court for five years. I can't go anywhere, you know, um, I no longer have custody of them. So I had to very quickly learn to apply the principle of acceptance and, humil- and ex- of humility into my life right. where that part of my story is concerned. And I think for every mother that finally gets clean, like, that's a big deal. That's a big part of 
you know, it's a big part of it. You know, um, they tell you you can't get clean for your kids, and I believe that. Like, my kids were not enough to get me clean, but once I got a little clean time, I think it's the hope of every mother that goes through that to uh, for that to have that reconciliation, you know, at some point to uh, start to be the mother they always dreamed they could be if they could just stop getting high. Exactly. You know, and, but that wasn't where, that wasn't my story. They're, they're there. I'm here. I can't, and I, I have to, I have to do the next right thing in front of me, which is go to court, do this. Basically, drug court ruled my life for the next few years. You know, I had, um, they were very um, gracious. And every year I got clean, they let me go visit. So I'm, I'm very grateful to the 8th Judicial Drug Court. Um, Is that the one in uh, Lauderdale County? No, it's um, Walnut Grove. Near? Leak County, Scott okay. County. Gotcha. New, New Show, but yeah, so it's the 8th Judicial Drug Court. Um, and uh, I, I at first I just got down to the business of not getting high one day at a time and doing everything that drug court said. Because at this point, obviously, I don't know how to live. Right. Everything I know about living is going to kill me, but this enter this entity that is will very plainly lay it out for you. You know, you need to do A, B, and C. You know, and so that's um, that's what I did. I, I kind of I finally surrendered to. You know, I think recovery is full of different levels and times of surrendering to different things. Or whatever your life necessitates at the time, and at that time, I was surrendering to. First, it was the will of drug court. Like, what do you want me? Tell me what to do. You know, and uh, once I stopped trying to fix, manage, and control the situation, and just let go, and did all I had to do was do what they were telling me to do. And once I did that, the drug court became. There, a lot of people say drug court set up to fail. I don't believe that. They were, not, you know, once I got in a different mindset, they were so supportive. And anytime I had a problem, I could go to them and they would help me. Um, you know, drug court saved my life, I think. I, re- I really do think that the judicial drug court saved my life. Um, but that, that, that's what I had to focus on. That was the next right thing in front of me. And... I went through some stages of grief and guilt, feeling like I was putting my children on the back burner. And I was having trouble dealing with that. So even in early recovery, I was still really miserable. So once again, here I am, I'm abstinent. And now I'm, I'm learning how to be a quote unquote productive member of society. But like inwardly, I was still really unmanageable. I was still really unhappy. I didn't feel fulfilled. I did all this stuff. I didn't have everything I thought I wanted. I want what I want and I want it now. Right. Um, so enter the pro you know, enter a twelve step program, and it, it a, lays out how to live a life in recovery, and uh, and, and a sponsor, yes. and, and the and these steps that teach me how to deal with all the inward unmanageability, so right. it can stop bleeding out into my outward life. Yeah, because those drugs were just a symptom of the problem. The problem was Me. in your head and in your heart. Yes, I, yeah. I was the problem, you know. Um, and so I did. I, I uh, it probably took about a year into my um, into being you know, a year of being clean slash abstinent. You know, I was attending meetings, but at that point, if I'm being honest, I was only doing it because drug court said I had to get this paper signed sure. so many times a week. You know, but after about a year being in the rooms and abstinent from all substances. And I was still really miserable. I was still really unhappy. I still couldn't get along with people. Um, didn't matter if I had the job and the apartment and the car and if I had all the outward trappings of what's, you know, a, a normal life supposed to look like. I still was not. And I, I found myself just like I was during that 10-year period when I was married. And, and now I've done, I've, uh, you know, I know where that leads me. Right. So I, I started, I remember about a year clean, I started having those moments of like, well, what's the point of all this? What is the point of all this? You know? Um, I don't have drugs and I'm miserable. Yeah. Like, this like, is not what, the point. What the? I, I, I don't have, I don't have my kids. Right. I don't have, I don't, I, 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 I. 
you know, um, I want to talk about all the things I don't have, but not wanting to, not being willing to do what I needed to do to change my story, right. you know? And um, I think, I think it's important that we, we jump back onto this fact that you said you were sober for almost a year and still miserable inside. So for the listener, please understand that just because you remove the drugs and alcohol does not mean that your life is going to be perfect and shiny and you're going to be happy at all times. But this I can promise you, if you don't drink and use no matter what and and actively try to work on yourself, your life will improve eventually. And like they always say, don't quit five minutes before the miracle happens. Yes. So what happened? Did you, after that first year or so, what did you do to continue on that path? So I remember between still not being able to maintain healthy relationships, platonically, romantically, anything like, you know, so finding, getting some pain behind those, feeling really empty in this job that I would go to, not being grateful for the car that I was driving from that job home to this apartment that I had, you know, everywhere I went, I was, you know, none of it was good enough. None of it was good enough if I didn't have my children. Right. Like I had such tunnel vision on that one thing, nothing, that nothing else was good enough, you know? Um, and I remember I'd, I had picked up my, my one year key tag, that glow in the dark key tag. And, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd worked a, a shift. I, I was working at a restaurant at the time. I remember working a closing, a closing shift and just being really, really just, mis- just being my miserable self, you know. And a lot of nights I would drive home from my job, go to that, that apartment where I was still really lonely and still, you know, did not feel I was not allowing myself to be connected to any sort of program or fellowship yet, you know. Um and I would just, often nights, I would just, that was, that was my routine. I would get there and I would just get home and just cry. Just cry. And then, and then it happened. I remember I had just picked up my key tag and I was, I was coming into my apartment one night and we had these new neighbors. Uh, this, and apparently the new neighbor was a dope boy. Mm-hmm. And he was a. Uh, Introducing himself to the complex by giving out samples. Oh, great! Right, so here, so here comes what a me. Class act. Here comes me, right? <laughs> and uh, so you know, he was literally like, I don't know, like at this point, I must, I must have still had like junkie written on my forehead, you know, because really nothing had changed. I had just taken away what I used to put on a front. Right. So I still, I don't know, but uh, so uh, he gave me, gave me a sample, right? He handed it to me. And I, and, and, I, and I took it in my hand, and I went into my apartment, and I started sweating, and my heart started racing, and I started crying, and I was freaking out, and I was about to get high with a year clean, all of this, all this time hanging over my head, all of this, and I was about to get high. And uh, I just had, I don't know, I just, I broke down. And I think it was one of the first times I ever... Um, did what the program suggests, which is call someone and tell them what's going on before you use. So I remember I called someone from from that uh, 12-step fellowship that I had been attending every day, sometimes twice a day. Um, I called someone, um, and they came over, and they, they sat with me until it passed. And I didn't get high that night, right? Um, uh, still really frazzled and very... Um, scared you know um so the next day I called I call I, I had um over this this first year I did I started had started to form a couple friendships and one friendship was with this uh woman um her name was Katie and um so the day after I didn't get high and throw it all away you know I called her and I said I told her what happened and um I said, what do I do? I said, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd been in the rooms long enough to hear about honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. So here, I said, here I am being honest. Um, I'm open. I'm open, and I'm willing. Tell me what to do. And she said, you need to get a sponsor. 
you need to start working some steps. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well. And flush the shit down the toilet. Well, no, the person that came to okay. sit with me had very quickly gotten rid of. Let's so, solve that. Yeah, that was very, problem. that was the first thing, you know. Um, so she gave me the number of her sponsor. <coughs> so I, I, call, and I called and uh, immediately got to work with a sponsor. I immediately got into this, the, the 12 steps. And that's where everything started to change for me. Did you start to feel some relief? Immediately. Yeah. Immediately. Isn't it amazing thing. how all this time during that first year, you're going to meetings and not really as invested in recovery as you would be later, but it's still wearing off on you. Right. I mean, it's still making an impact on you. And I think all too often we we fail to, you know, I think of the podcast largely as, you know, put, helping people put bricks in the wall. You know, it's, Little by little, adding to things, hearing things, and the more you know, recovery is in, in our face. The more we can pick up on things, yeah. and this is a perfect example. The more you are around NA, something something happened during that first year where you at least thought maybe I ought not do this. Right? Yeah, the, I remember hearing people in the rooms talking about, "I'm just here today to tell on myself." I right. remember hearing that a lot. I got to tell on myself when I'm having these crazy thoughts or even when I do unhealthy things, even if I, if even if I do, when I do shameful, you know, all, all the shameful things, all the unhealthy things, all the, the crazy thought, all of that, like the best thing I can do is tell on myself, tell right. on my disease. Cause those are all symptoms of the disease of addiction, which I have. Right. And it's well, then there's guaranteed to be people in the meeting that are doing the exact same shit yeah. pretending not to. Yeah, and it's important that okay, so we could it's it's safe to say that the the uncomfortability for that first year was as a result of you not jumping into working the steps, right? Is that yes, safe to that say? Yes. That that's my right. know, so, that is but, my story. But the thing with that is it takes what it takes, right? And our own personal experiences are, are what shape us to be able to allow us to then offer the, the next person. So now you are not only are you qualified to help someone and discuss recovery and addiction, but you're also uniquely qualified now to be able to offer hope to someone who may be struggling in early sobriety with, you know, thoughts of just of un, unhealthy, sad, depressing thoughts. And you can now, because of your own personal experience with that first year, you, you're now uniquely qualified to be able to help them to walk through that with dignity and grace. So there's, I, 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 it's, it's unfortunate that that first year was so difficult for you, but in the long run, I think that it's a beautiful thing that you did have to go through that struggle because now you can help that next person who may be struggling with that. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So, well, thank you. <laughs> Um, so you asked me how my story was going to come full circle. So I got down to doing the steps and um, my sponsor, me, you know, immediately threw me into service work. I really do. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a big believer in service work. So I was very fortunate and be blessed to almost step into an already established sponsorship family um, where there was a sponsor and a grand sponsor and and I had sponsorship sisters who had, and we had sponsor, like we had this huge sponsorship family and we would, we would do service work. We would, uh, travel, um, we'd go to recovery conventions in Florida and Alabama. And, uh, there's a, you know, we're really tight with the fellowship in Louisiana. There's some amazing people in the program out there that have helped me through so much of, of my journey, you know, from forever grateful for, the fellowship, which is everywhere. Right. It's just like the dope was when I first got to Mississippi. You get what you're looking for. Right. And when I'm looking for it, it's everywhere, you know, and I'm so grateful for that. And so I got down to the business of following suggestions, doing step work, of, you know, and I really do feel that, like, by doing the steps, I learned to apply spiritual principles into my life. You know, because you hear about spiritual principles and da, da da da, but like at first, what does that mean? Right. Like, what is that? Someone coming off the street shooting up dope. Like, like spiritual sp- principles. What the f- <laughs> does that mean? <laughs> you know, so I've learned, you know, through only only through doing that, like every step I do 
is going to teach me how to apply a different spiritual principle into my life. You know, so, you know, faith of all that is, is faith as an action word, you know? Absolutely. Um, and so here we go, you know, um, time starts flying by and I'm not using, I'm not even thinking about using and I'm not miserable anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I'm happy and, and I got, I got some real serenity going on in my life and all the, and I have accepted that where I'm at in, in proximity to my children at this point, I'm getting to visit them once a year, um, you know, with the permission of drug court and, uh, it's just, and, and there I go, you know, um, so I graduated drug court a couple of years ago, successfully graduated. Congratulations. Drug court, awesome. Right. That was, I was really, really proud of that. You know, um, I was really, really proud of that. And so here I am now free to, uh, leave the state. Um, but around, the, I remember the same time I was graduating drug court, someone, a power greater than me had must've seen what I was doing and, and deemed me worthy to be a mother again. So in recovery, I've been blessed with a beautiful baby girl. Wow. She's two now. So two years ago, I, uh, right around the time I was graduating drug court, um, I found out I was going to be having my daughter, my, my third child. And I like, and I think somewhere I veered off of a higher power's path for my life. Cause all of a sudden I decided I was going to change, I was going to change the plan. Right. So, you know, now I'm having this child. So maybe that means that my life's meant to be here. And now if I just build the perfect life here, my, my, you know, my kids can come here and be a part of my life here. And it's just going to all be, you know, um, we're so quick to make these big plans. Oh yes. We? Oh yes. Oh yes. You know, and I'm, I'm real quick, you know, cause I'm human, you know, and, and I'm flawed and I'm real, I can be real quick to dress up my will as my higher powers. Sure. If it's oh, something yeah. I want bad enough, right, you know? Right, yeah. Um, and that's what I think I've spent the last couple of years doing was trying to build this perfect picture that I can, that they can just come and plop right into, you know, um, but that wasn't, that wasn't higher power's plan for my life, you know? So a couple of years go by, let's say my daughter's two now. My other two at this point are 18 and 12. And my oldest, who is the one that was probably the most affected by um, my, last, my last relapse. You know, she was eight, her brother was two. You know, um, while mommy was busy losing her mind, she was busy taking care of her little brother. Right. You know, um, Emily is, she's, she's my beautiful soldier. She has been through things that no child should have to go through. Um, and she has come out of it remarkably well. So is, so is, so is Brandon, my son. They're both, um, they've, they've both done, they both come, turned out really well despite me, you know, um, not, well, that's, that's the wrong words, but, uh, I know what you mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and uh, my oldest is now, she's 18, and she's now getting ready to have a child of her own. Wow. So. Um, and now and you get to be in their life. So on the, on the heels of, of her, and it's just, and it wasn't working out how I always envisioned it, you know, them coming here, and you know, because I tried to, I tried to, you know, once again, build this picture, and even with all my years of recovery and step work and, and all this, you know, self-knowledge, all this stuff, if I don't actively dig deep and do something different, I will find myself in the same situations that once got me high. Absolutely. So here I find myself once again in another toxic, abusive relationship with a young child. But when we know better, we do better. So I didn't stay in it. And I managed to get out of it with my clean date intact. Good. So here I am. Now I have this child and I have these two children in California. Um, um, and it just kind of all came together. And, you know, yet another one of those, like, you ever just make a decision and no matter the outside circumstances of that decision or what it will entail to follow through, the decision itself is completely peaceful. So I came to, so I, I've made one of those decisions. So on, in just a few days, I'm moving back to California. Whoa. To go be with my children. Wow. 
we leave on we leave on Thursday. Wow. So I'm taking my daughter, my mama, um, who who we live you know she lives with me now. <clears throat> she came to live with me a couple years ago. Um, it's kind of one of those living amends deal, and that seems to be the stage of, I'm at in my recovery. I'm in a phase of living amends to my mother, to my children, um, and to a certain extent to myself. Like I'm still, I still have to actively work to for, to forgive myself for things sure. and continue to move forward. You know, so that's kind of where I'm at. So yeah, in just a few days, I'm moving back to California. I'm finally going to uh, be with my children again. Wow, that's a big step. So it's, I say, it's kind of like a full circle deal. And so on the heels of this, you know, um, Drew reached out to me and was like, hey, can you do it on this day? And I was like, that's right before I leave. You know what? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Well, you should promise to <laughs> to, follow, to follow up with us and let us know how it goes out in California. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, definitely. I've already, that's exciting. through my visits, I already have got um, somewhat of a foundation laid as far as um, uh, the twelve step fellowships out there and meetings and and people like so, I think on some level, par- part of me always knew that this this might be the way it goes, you know. So on my visits out there through the last six years, I've always gotten phone numbers and stayed in contact with people and began to nurture relationships out there, and so I do feel that you know. I have a pretty good recovery foundation that I'm going to. There's some great meetings out oh, yes. there. Great meetings out there. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, that's Well, awesome. maybe that'll help mitigate any culture shock because I'm sure that life out there, uh, you know, they have philosophies that it's different. central Mississippi doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's different. But. Yeah, it's. I, I'm not sure at this, like – to, like today sitting here right now i'm not even sure where i would call home like home is 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 there but right. home is here right like right. this is you know I've, I've been i've been in mississippi eight years six of those have been clean you know like so i don't know am i going home or am i going somewhere new am i going to feel like a like a visitor in my hometown i don't know you know i wouldn't stress too much about it i would just no, you I, have all I these would, newfound ways of dealing with things right. that I you do. can yeah. employ there. I you've, do. You've got all these tools in your tool belt. You're not going to fail. So um, I am. I'm, I'm super. I'm super excited about uh, this next chapter. Oh uh, yeah, of my story. That's you awesome. Know, it is, and uh, I said, of course, the the details of such can be overwhelming. You know, like I still have so much packing to do. I'm a bad procrastinator i still have not completely packed i'm still working on it well nobody's perfect (laughs) right (laughs) so but the decision itself has never i don't think i've made such a like it's the most peaceful decision i've made in a really long time that's usually an indicator that it's a good decision yeah there was you know over over the years there's always been the idea has presented itself, especially since being off drug court of course the idea has presented itself of you know and uh, there was always something that just kind of was like, there was always this now twinge right or this. And well, isn't it nice that you didn't blow your life up here? Right. So that in six months, if you think, I really want to go back to Mississippi, there's a family and a community here yeah. waiting for you. Right. You know, I could, throughout my life, it's just a, you know, in the rearview mirror is a barren wasteland of people I have shit on and abused right. <laughs> and yes. that don't want me to call right. at all. Yeah. Just, just don't even come to our city. That's the yeah. Way. Like move. Yeah, that is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I'll even well, help you. Pack. California sounds yeah. great for you. Can you go farther away? Yeah, yeah. And California was like, dude, you got to go, bro. You got to go. I think I hear Alaska's looking good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. It's, it sounds like a beautiful, beautiful thing, and uh, what an awesome opportunity I to do. reconnect. And I think one of the most important lessons recovering has taught me is that uh, is not to run. I'm a, I'm a runner. Obviously, look at my story. Like, you right, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think, and like I, I mentioned very briefly, because this part of my story is still unfolding, but like with uh, my daughter's father, once again, I find myself in the exact same kind of relationship that I ran from and got high, you know, 
um, in the aftermath of before, you know. Um, and today I feel like, you know, I got out of that situation about a year ago. And, you know, and I managed to walk through that situation without blowing up my life, without getting <coughs> high, without doing what my step work has showed me that I, that I do with those situations. Right. Break those chains, break so those habits. I thought about hightailing it for California a year ago when I first got out of that situation. And there was that, that twinge, you know, and something told me to stay. Like my, my work here wasn't done yet, you know. And I'm glad because now I, I've learned, through experience, only through experience, I've learned how to not run from things, but to walk into things. Right, and to sit with uncomfortability. So, yeah, um, and all of this is only possible because of recovery. Absolutely. So. Well, thank you so much. Look, thank you for taking this time away from your packing <laughs> to come and yes. and spend an hour with us. Yeah, we are very grateful for you, and um, we wish you nothing but the best. And I have, I have no doubt in my mind that this is going to be a – Awesome, awesome experience for you. I'm so, excited. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Take care. We're out.